How's the food? Good? Excellent. Good. So uh, I'd like to welcome all of you, especially on this uh, bright <laughs> day, to come here. And uh, we really honored um, that Father Dubois here. My name is Barry Bloom. I'm the chair of the Senior Lawyers Committee. And the Senior Lawyers Committee uh, sponsors the Public Affairs Luncheon Program. It's one of our signature events. Uh, another signature event is a program that we have in May about lawyers in transition. By the way, if you have any electrical device or phone or something else, please silence it now. So the Senior Lawyers Committee um, is really a bub is bubbling over with new explosive ideas and programs in addition to the public affairs luncheon program and uh, the handout that uh, I hope you have at your table it describes generally what we uh, what we do and what we'd like to do but we really are exploring new programs uh, and I should add also that we have a co-sponsor for this program, which is the uh, Human, Human Rights Committee at the Bar Association. So in addition to being unique, the Senior Lawyers Committee, because we don't focus on any particular legal issue, but we're open to many issues relating uh, to the Law. One uh, recent program that we've initiated last year is a mentor program with uh, Pace Law School. Uh, this year, we have a number of programs bubbling up. Uh, one is a, a new podcast program, uh, and uh, we have many others. So if you really want to bubble up with us, think about coming to our meeting, our next meeting is uh, February 20th. And we also uh, have started a, a new program on aging in America. And by the way, we don't discriminate about younger, younger people joining the Senior Lawyers Commission. We have a number of uh, younger lawyers. But there is a program on aging in America, which uh, will be here at the Bar Association on September 20th in, in the evening. So again, just let me say, if you're a, a change maker, if you want to do something that is a passion of yours, you want to get involved in doing something that is important and new, think about coming to the Senior Lawyers Committee. So as I said, we're honored to have Father Dubois here. He's going to be talking about uh, issues related to the Holocaust. Um, how can we prevent mass killings and Holocausts in the future? I don't have a definitive answer, but I do have a suggestion that each one of you can think about and do. The suggestion is Listen and watch the program on PBS called Won't You Be My Neighbor? 
And that's a program that Mr. Rogers, you know, of PBS fame, uh, it's a program about his, uh, what, what he did. Uh, he also mentions in that program the precept, the concept of tikkun olam, that is to repair the world. So each one of us can follow the precept in tikkun olam. But now I'd like to call on Frank Wagner, who was the chair of the Public Affairs Luncheon Committee, to introduce Father Desbois. I, I, I'm honored today to introduce our speaker, Father Patrick Dubois, who is an author, professor, historian, forensic detective, and a human rights activist. He discovered an aspect of the Holocaust that has not been a part of the conventional narrative, the mass shooting of Eastern European Jews by Nazi killing units. He is racing against time to record the testimony of witnesses to horrific events. The director of New York's uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage recently said that Desbois has made an enormous contribution by getting the location of these mass graves. But the value of what he's done goes beyond illuminating history. He's brought us these voices they would have been silenced without him. Father Dubois is the founder of Yadin Uman, excuse me if I mispronounced that, Together in One, a nonprofit organization dedicated to discovering genocidal practices around the world and providing documented proof of crimes against humanity. He has spent the last several years with his team gathering testimonies from survivors of the Yazidi massacres in northern Iraq at the hands of ISIS. That work has resulted in hundreds of hours of eyewitness accounts of this modern-day genocide. His organization conducts teacher training seminars designed to equip educators with the tools and resources to teach the recently discovered history of World War II and it has founded the Museum of the Holocaust in Guatemala, the first museum of the Holocaust in Central America. The museum trains hundreds of educators each year. Father DeBras has received numerous honors for his work, including a humanitarian award from the U.S. Holocaust Museum and the 2017 Lantos Human, Prize, Human Rights Prize and he is a professor of practice of the forensic study of the Holocaust at uh, Georgetown University. Before Father DeVos addresses us, there is a, video, a short video which will be played.
she said, oh, I will show you. And she put her boots, she put her jacket, and she brought us at the end of the village, and she showed 18 small mouse graves. find somebody to say what I did. She was uh, 14 years old, Ukrainian, and the morning when the German arrived, they called uh, 10 girls and, uh, with a spade, and she, she asked her mom, must I go, and the mom told her, if you don't go, I will shoot you. And so she was forced to walk on the course between every shooting, to pack the course, to, to make space, and she said, suddenly, all my schoolmates, Jewish schoolmates arrived, and I had to walk on them. My mom came back from the market and she told us we have to shoot very well because they killed the Jews this afternoon. So they were shooting and they went and she said for the first shooting we, we got a very good place, we saw everything. But for the second shooting we didn't get a good place. <coughs> the Jewish woman, before being killed, they threw their jewels. Uh, because they don't want to give them to the Germans. And sometimes we find Magen David, wedding rings, a medallion. And I say, it's a lot just that this girl did in 42, just before she was shot. And every time I find it, I say, we found you, we found you, finally we found you. Finally, we found me. When, when, when I go with my team, I say, Don't forget that the dead people are waiting for you. They wait for us in 70 years. When you were sure you were not Jew, you were not gypsy, you were not gay, you were not communist, you were not partisan, why you would be afraid? So you went to watch. People are attracted to go to watch people being killed when they think there is no, no risk for them. One lady, by example, she told me, I went to see all the shooting. It was 17, and she was a teenager. And I said, why did you stay to see all these shootings? And she said, no, it was interesting for the children. And I heard this phrase now hundreds of times, interesting for the children. I realized also that everybody could be a killer, everybody could be a victim. You know, when I knock at the door in Russia, Ukraine, or anywhere, they open the door, and I, would, I don't know at that moment if they say Jews or kill Jews. And I would discover that in the interview. And me, when I was younger, I was thinking that the killers have awful faces, or psychotic, uh, or monsters, and the, the savior were nice people. <coughs> Unfortunately, it's only one human kind. And so, uh, yeah, everybody can be a killer, everybody can be a victim. It's why we have to teach people to say one day you have to take responsibility. 
Sometimes you can think in America you are in a bubble of protection. But that's not true, there is only one planet and it's burning in so many countries. Be aware, when it begins, it's a disease. The people who spread the disease are smart also. We have never to underestimate the enemy. It's a big mistake. You know, when I was young, people told me, don't speak to them here. They're old, but not to speak with them, they will disappear. They are still old, but suddenly around new deniers now are 40 years old, 45 years old, who drive, are driving crowds, crowds of people behind themselves. So uh, I learned, I say, what a mistake. And I say, you must stay in a fighting position. The worst would be to sleep well and to dream, people will wake up in the night. because father of French took risk to hide them. So me, I always say, I believe in minority. I believe in minority will stand up and carry the flag, and after, we can draw people behind them. So for example, when I teach in Georgetown, or when I teach in other places, I always say, one day perhaps, we will be part of this minority. first question that everybody raised always is why a Catholic French priest and a team, because now we are 29 full-time in Paris, why we are working since uh, 15 years in the killing fields of Ukraine, Poland, Russia, Belarus, Romania, Moldavia, Macedonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Lithuania. You know, I will be quick for that. It began by a family story because my grandpa was deported in July 42 from France to Ukraine. He was not Jew, he was not communist, he was a regular soldier and he escaped from a camp of prisoners and he did that three times and the third time he succeeded, he reached the city of Strasbourg and he wanted to buy a train ticket to join his family, and the woman who was selling the train ticket called the Gestapo. So he has been sent to Ukraine with 25,000 French who are supposed not to come back. He grew me, and uh, he never accepted to say one word about that. Uh, the name of the place was Ravaruska. We didn't even know where it was. And one day, after I became, my, my grandpa passed away, I became mathematic teacher and after priest. And one day, by azar or providence, I went back to Ravaruska. And I knew that in that village they shot 18,000 Jews, plus 25,000 Soviet prisoners. We knew that from archives. But nobody wanted to speak. So Ravaruska is at the border between Ukraine and Poland, is near Lvov near the camp of Belzec, but it's in Ukraine. And suddenly, when the Soviet lost completely the power, the mayor of Ravaruska, he brought me in a forest with 50 farmers who were present at the killing. I knew nothing. He told me, 
Patrick, we go to the mass grave of the last 1,500 Jews of Ravaroska, and they gathered in the forest, and they spoke one after another. You know, these people are simple people, poor people. Uh, one, he, he was alone. His name was Martin. He was alone with a, a cow and his mother. And suddenly, he saw a German arriving with his motorcycle and turning. And this German left. And so all the village was wondering why they sent one German alone. Now we know, we know that two, three, four days before the killing, they sent an architect. He's in charge of digging the mass grave. So he goes to the city hall and he asks how many Jews are still alive. And he's in charge of calculating the volume of the mass grave to dig. And so, and after he will make requisition of civilian to do it. Effectively, in this place, the day after arrived the free German with 30 Jews in a truck, and they did ask to the Jews to go on digging. You know, they remember details, the witnesses. They remember that the Germans were buried doing the digging, so they began to put a gramophone on a table, and they were listening German music, and one was playing harmonica, and he broke his harmonica. And later, with metallic detector, we found the pieces of German harmonica in the ground. After a certain time, the Germans said to the Jews, stop digging and take rest. So the 30 Jews went out of the mass grave and sat. But secretly, one Ukrainian policeman, he went down and he put explosive. After half an hour, they said to the Jews, go on digging. Of course, the 30 Jews exploded. At that moment, I, will, I remember another witness, a lady called Maria. She came and she told me, the German came in my farm and told me, come, come. And she had to climb in the trees and pick up the pieces of corpse of Jews and hide them with branches so that the Jews will not see that. You must understand it was very difficult for me because I was alone. I was not trained at that period. We had no, no recorder. It was like that. And the Soviet, they speak very crudely. So she, I remember, will never forget, she explained one leg of a woman was here, one arm was there. I was nearly in shock already. And after, they remember that they brought trucks and trucks and trucks of Jews. In one day and a half, they shot 1,500 Jews. It was the end of the Jews of Ravaruska. Only with two shooters, with carabine Mausers, and three pushers. Why pushers? Because if a Jew was too old, could not walk, or too young with babies, or disabled, they were pushed and buried alive. And after in every village, effectively, people told us it took three days the mass grave to die. The mass grave was moving. You know, I remember also what witness was very young. He was looking younger than the others. So I asked him how old you were during the war. He told me I was five years old. I told him, don't tell me you were here at the shooting. He told me, yes, I was here. Because the shooters, they have put a table with their two carabines, but there was also a box of candies. And on one side, they were shooting the Jews. On the other side, they made distribution of candies to the children of the village. So he said, I came always to pick up candies. You know, 
in one day I discovered a lot. I discovered the shooting of the Jews were public. It was like a carnival. Everybody wanted to watch, to have a place, to get something, at least to see. It was public and also the local people wanted to speak. It could have stopped that day because uh, I understood the secret of my grandpa. He was prisoner, but he saw the killings. But I went back to the car. The mayor of Ravaruska, he told me, Patrick, what I did in one village, I can do in 100 villages. And I will never know why he said that. And I will never know why I said yes. I came back to Paris. I met Cardinal Lustiger, who was Jew, by family. He told me, I know the story, Patrick, because my Polish Jewish family has been shot the same way in Beijing, in Poland. I came in New York. I knew nobody. I met the manager of the World Jewish Congress. At the period, it was Israel Singer. And uh, he didn't know I was speaking Hebrew. I heard he said to somebody, you know what? We are looking for these mass graves in 44, and we have in front of us a guy that we don't know finds them. So I organized a private meeting near Paris between Israel Singer from New York and Cardinal Lustiger. And uh, we'll never forget because Lustiger did not know that Singer was kosher. So we could eat nothing except an apple. And uh, we built this nonprofit called Yahad Inunum together in Hebrew and Inunum in Latin. As I'd say, it's a silly choice because when I speak to Catholic, they ask me, why Yahad? When I speak to Jews, they say, what is Inunum? And when I speak to non believers, they understand nothing. <laughs> so we have two nonprofits. We have a nonprofit. In, in France, and a friend, an American non-profit to support it, Friends of Yahad. So what is our methodology? Most of you are lawyers or judges, so it's easy to understand. We are looking for corroborative evidences. So for each crime, first, we study the archives. You must know that the Soviet reopened the mass grave in 43, 44 and interrogated the neighbors. is 17 million of pages, written by hand in Russian. After we have the German archive from justice, and after we have the testimony of the survivors. So we crisscross with three archives, and we began to make a map and to know more or less where are the shootings. When we have finished that, it's a long time job, because even for a region, uh, there is one mass grave per village, you must understand. In every village, there is a mass grave, small or big. The biggest mass grave is not Babiyar, is north of Odessa, 45,000 people in one place. It was the Jews from Odessa and Bessarabia. And another big mass grave, huge, is in Belarus, near Brest-Litovsk. It's also 45 to 50,000 people. So after we go in the village, we are 11 persons with local from the country. They wake up very early, they drive to the village, and they knock at every door when the house looks old. We have always the same question, were you here during the war? And if the person says yes, says, were you here at the shooting of the Jews or the gypsy? 
And if she says yes, she says, oh, you know, we came from France specially to know what happened. Do you accept to speak in front of a camera? And I would say 99% of the people say yes. And so after the team will arrive with 11 people and we make, it's not an interview. It's like it, we rebuild the crime. It's like cold case. So from the time she was young until the time she saw the Jews being killed in front of her and insisting a lot about the topography of the crime to know where is the crime scene. And if the person accepts to walk, we go back after to the mass grave and we make a second interview. And here she will remember many of the things because sometimes it's only one mile from her house, but she never came back since 42. You must understand the witnesses, they speak to us for the first time, most of them, they never spoke to anybody. Because in Soviet Union, if you began to speak about the German who sent to Gulag immediately, whatever was the subject, or sentenced to death. So at the beginning, people were very afraid to be deported after the testimony because most of our witnesses were 70 years under the Soviet. I say that because it's another mentality. It's not like if we worked in France or Germany, it's completely another story. So I will explain you why I published a second book and what, what, I, what are we found. You know, we have filmed more than 6,000 people, so non-Jews, present at the killing. And so the, the question that came is, how these crimes were public? There are two times more victims by shooting than in Auschwitz. The shooting is 2 million point two. And people don't remember it. If you speak about Holocaust, if they know something, they will say Auschwitz. So Auschwitz was secret, and everybody remembers. The shootings were public, advertised, and nobody remembers. I say that because it's pretty scary for today, because the mass killers today, they learn. Nobody makes an Auschwitz today. Everybody makes genocide handmade because there is no memory. And so I looked for the protocol to say, is there a hidden protocol that the German established to do that? It was not sure. At the end, I found it in an archive. It was a protocol in 22 points. But everybody knew in the team of killers, from the driver to the cooker to the shooter, everybody knew exactly how to do. I will give you a few points among them. The first thing was to decide where to go. So they had a map in the region with all the Jewish places, not to miss one village. We never found one village where they didn't go. Never. They never forgot even a hamlet. And so suddenly they decide the place. They send this architect, discreetly, suited in civilian, coming to dig. So here begins the problem. By example, in Branayagora, in, in Belarus, they requisitioned 700 diggers. It meant that 700 people went back and forth during weeks to dig. So imagine the Jews who are in the ghetto most of the time, and see that the neighbors are going outside with their cart and horse every morning to dig and to come back. I said that because the first thing in a genocide, you need the neighbors. You cannot make a genocide without neighbors. 
You need them. Guilty or not guilty, volunteer or not volunteer, you need them. Because the killers, they have only guns. And they will not dig, and they will not bring back the suits and nothing. So I, I, I saw in one village, one mother, she was paying to, for a family to keep her child, to save her child. And her child was in a family where the, the son of the family was a digger. He was digging the mother's grave. They were sleeping in the same bed, the Jewish child and the digger. So the mother went out of the ghetto, the Jewish mother, and she asked the family, can I see your son? Because the son came and said, for who is the mother's grave? And the son refused to speak. So after she asked, how large is the mother's grave? And the, the son showed it. So the mother, she understood the mother's grave was with the Jews. So she said to her son, I take you with me. We will die all together. I say that because the, the Jews knew that the neighbors were working for that. After they decide the day, it means when the mass grave is ready, they phone to the region and they say the mass grave is ready. They will choose will be shooter. You must understand a German could be shooter one day and the second day cooker or driver. So you, you, you tomorrow morning. Most of the time, when the German, they know they will shoot, they, they drink. They have to wake up at 4 o'clock and to drive in the night to the village to be ready before the Jews wake up. What I discovered terrible with testimony is that the last night of the ghetto, the ghetto was surrounded by the local police waiting for the killers. But the neighbors, they knew it was the last day they could take advantage of the Jews. So either they entered in the ghetto to take money, belongings, either the policemen entered in the ghetto to rape the Jewish girls. And in morning, they, they always would go out and say, I could rape two girls, I could rape three girls. It was very difficult to establish. And uh, I remember I interviewed a survivor, a Jewish survivor from the ghetto of Minsk in uh, Belarus. He told me I was a teenager. And my family told me, you make like if you were sick, not to be arrested. So he was in his bed, like sick. And he looked by the window, and he saw that the German took the girl of the neighbor. She was 14, and she was raped in front of him. The family went out to protect the girl. The German shot the family and raped the girl. And he told me this awful phrase, because after he was deported to Auschwitz, and he told me, at least in Auschwitz, we could sleep the night. I say that because it was a taboo in the ghetto. For the woman, for the Jewish woman, for the girls, it was a nightmare. And after we found in every Gestapo, more east in Russia, there were sex slaves until the end of the war. Somebody is from Busk here, I heard. So in Busk, it was the most difficult thing because they had a, a big group of Jewish sex slaves. And at the uh, end of the, the war, these sex slaves were pregnant. So Germans said, we don't dare to shoot them. The war is finished because we, we, we have a relation with them. So they asked another unit to come and to shoot them. And so this Jewish girl, they knew it would be shot because they were the last Jews. So they asked a derogation to go in a truck and say goodbye to all the village. So it's terrible because the village, the, the truck turned in the village and they said bye-bye to everybody and they were shot. And nobody wanted to show where was the mass grave. 
I found only an old lady who accepted to show it and she was shaking like that, afraid to be denounced. I say that because it's also a hidden part of the Holocaust by shooting the woman. We were far from Berlin and also Himmler made a derogation that it was okay to rape Jewish girl because the war was too difficult. I say that because some families ask us testimonies and sometimes when there's a question of rape, I always hesitate because it's not easy to know that the grandma had that story far, far ago. So after the killers, they arrive in the morning in the village. They ask to see everybody, the chief of the village, the digger, the cooker. The German wanted to eat in time. So they always ate at noon. So it means a lady or two, three ladies were cooking near the mass grave. I remember in a village, there was a long table like a buffet, and <clears throat> the Germans were going two per two to shoot and to come back. And me, I interviewed a woman, she was serving the food, and she told me at the end of the lunch, it was 1,500 Jews less. So that also is difficult to understand. And some Jews even survived because during the lunch, Germans went away and some of them could escape. The, the, so when it's ready, they, 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 they say to the Jewish village, you will be deported to Palestine. Don't worry. Take your belongings, take your money, your jewels, your coats. It will be a long travel. And so, you know, it was Soviet Union. So Stalin deported a lot of people already before. It was not a good news, but it was not necessarily the death. And I remember I interviewed an Ukrainian lady. She saw her neighbor in the line to be shot, and she began to cry. And the Jewish lady said, don't cry, don't cry, we go to Palestine. And she told her, no, you don't go to Palestine. Because this morning, I was with my cow behind the church, and I saw the grave. And the German told the Ukrainian, if you speak again with the Jews, we shoot you. So she closed her window. I say that because a part of the Jews really think they will take the train. I gave an example in Babiyar, where they killed 35,000 Jews. 10,000 went to the train station directly, thinking they take the train. And the Germans realized, say, they, they believe it, they believe it. You have to bring them back to the mass grave, to the Walloon, in fact. It was not a mass grave. After, an official arrives and says, direction Palestine. You know, the trick, it was to dig the mass grave like if they were to take the train in the same direction. But suddenly, no more, mass, no more train. Links reached, they have to stop and to turn. At that moment, the Jews realize they will die. The women don't accept to give her jewels. It's why they take all their jewels and they throw them everywhere. It's why with metallic detector, we can find them, not on the mass grave, but far away where they turn. It's very moving, you know, because sometime, one time I found 20 wedding rings. You know, it's the last jest that this girl did. Sometimes you find medallion, Mag and David, chain, and or sometimes it's mixed with bullets because a shooter tried to, to steal them and he forgot a few of them. And after they asked the Jews to sit down, perhaps I will show the slideshow. But we have, normally I don't show it, but as you are lawyers, I wanted to show you evidences. So you must understand they wanted a souvenir. 
They were private photograph. So, I can see it myself. So, that's in Ukraine. That's in Ukraine, that's in Jitomir. So, Jitomir is a big city. It's a place where they, they make the maximum of picture. So, these Jews in Jitomir is, are forced to watch. They have been convocated. They are forced to watch the, the killing of three Jews who are accused to be communists. And a few hours after, all these Jews will be shot. I say that because we have hundreds of pictures. It's not like in the gas chamber. We have a lot of evidences of the killers because they sent a souvenir to their wife. It's private pictures, most of them. I don't see it from back. So, yeah, so... But in Podolsky, typically you see the women are sitting. And you see a guy with, like, to, to survey. You know, the photograph is not a professional one because he takes a, photo, a German from the back. He shouldn't do that. And you see the problem is that there is no more male. So, in fact, they've already been separated. And you know, there is no fence, no train, no barbed wire, nothing. It's in the middle of the village. I say that because it was, it's why I called my second book, Broad Delight. It was a genocide in Broad Delight. More you make in Broad Delight, less you have memory. That's, SS, a professional, he follows the Jews before the shooting. He's an artist, and it's a small village east of Ukraine, in Lubny, so he follows the family one by one, until the death. You see the people, you see how they are, sitting, they, are, they are sitting down, they are waiting. They don't know if they will be shot or not, but you see in the face that they begin to, to, be, to think it's the last day. You must know that after two hours, all these people will be shot. It's finished. I say that because we have pictures of victims until the last moment. This, this photograph was upscale. He was photographed already in Babiyar, the same one. It was an SS photograph, but he didn't give the picture, and we found it by his wife who sold them after war. It's also in Ukraine, in Yepopetrovsk. You see people carrying their belongings. You must understand there was no bank at the period. People didn't put their money in the bank, so all the money, everything was inside. So for the German, a family has like a working bank. It could be a huge number, like here in Belarus. This picture is very weird. The girls are nearly naked, humiliated. Same thing, it's a souvenir picture. So the guy in front wanted to have a souvenir. Same photograph from Lubny, he arrived to one day late. The Jews were already shot in Babiyar. So he took only the suits, and if you look well, inside this picture you have German Wehrmacht who was looting the, the suits. You see the two German who are in the middle. So that was Babiyar. I say that because in Babiyar people will tell you, no, no, uh, they have been undressed before, no, no, no. It's, uh, it was very chaotic, and after it was like supermarket. Everybody wanted to grab something in the pockets. 
So this picture is terrible. It was also in Dubosari, in Moldavia, but it's also a souvenir. When you have the number of shooters, you have the number of Jews under, because it's one shoot, one bullet, one Jew. You see the place of this man. This man is a guy who avoids the Jews to go out. The mass grave is like that. He puts them in a stick. If they move, he forces them to wait. And this guy is a local policeman. He's not a German. You see also that people are very used, don't care, don't even look. They do that every day during three years. As they said, we have many testimonies, they said it was job as usual. You see, this one who is watching, you must understand here there are a lot, a lot of farmers, because me, I interview people here. It was a lot of farmers watching, but on this side, because the Germans want to be the hero in the picture. They don't want to show the farmers in the picture. Another one, same thing, they are waiting to, die, to get the picture. I say that because it was a crime done by anybody, first any German. You see a photograph here? Take pictures. It was a crime done by first by any German. We insist a lot about collaboration, but why only German first? Because they wanted the belongings. They didn't agree that the Ukrainians or the Russians will take all the dollars and the mark and all the fortune of the Jews. So they involved the local, but not from the belongings. So that's one witness who is going on the place. You know, today it's in the middle of nowhere. But the mass grave were 2,000 victims. I say that because it's also a duty for us now is to protect the main mass graves quickly. Because we finish the job, we, are, we have found now 1,000,000.5 Jews. We still need to find 900,000 Jews, minimum. See what we are running against time sending team after team and raising the money for that also. Another mass grave. You see here, 4,800. Nothing, no souvenir, nothing. Total eradication of the memory. It's why when you shoot people, it doesn't make memory. You know, we are in, in <coughs> Poland, and we are near so people. Officially, there is no shooting. In fact, we are allowed to shoot. And this guy was burning the people. But was in Russia, 3,000 Jews here in the balloon. We found the last witness. Here, it was summer, so Jews were bleeding in the full summer. You see the size of one person. And that's it. So why do we do that? I do the same in Iraq. We do the same in Iraq, actually, against ISIS. Because ISIS uh, did the same thing with the Yazidi. Why do we do that? For different reasons. You know, they, they shot 2 million point two, 2 million point three Jews in the middle of nowhere, and nobody remembers. So the first thing is to find what happened and to give back the dead to the family. What does it mean? It means that actually we have families from everywhere writing to us and asking, in which mass grave is my grandma? In which mass grave is the rabbi? In which mass grave is the uncle? And if they can, for the first time, they will go and say Kaddish. You know, it will be the first Kaddish since 42, 41, 43. Or at least they will send somebody. So it's to reconnect the dead. Because normally when you lose your family in Holocaust, you don't think you have a grave. You think it's finished. 
you think it disappeared. The second thing is to reconnect the, these dead Jews with the Jewish people, because they have been in very few museums, not shown. You know, it's always, of course, the camps, and after, uh, some shootings. No, it was a third of the victim minimum who has been shot. And so these people have to be, I will say, reconnected by, to the Jewish people. And the third thing is to fight against the deniers. Because, you know, if it was nothing to kill 2 million point two Jews, uh, what is it today to kill Jews in Paris, if it's only three Jews? So for the deniers, they cannot attack us, because they attack easily Auschwitz and that, but here they never worked. And we have all these links of evidences for every crime. All that is accessible online. We have on our website, you have a, a, a Google map, you can check your village, if we did your village or not. And the other thing what I see, and that my neighbor asked to me, what to do? Me, I teach in Georgetown. We have, I have minimum 70 students. And always I ask, why do you come to that course? 75% are not Jew. And uh, all of them say, we, we know. We know that if we study Holocaust, we'll be able to fight against hate today, against mass crime today. And so we must know a third of them change their way and will engage in security or job like that. Because I see, I mean, you know, I travel all over the world, and I see that more and more, in France it's an evidence, we have anti-Semitism who suddenly is climbing completely. You know that statistic has been given today. We learned that in 2008, there were 74% more anti-Semite act than the year before. And today, it's every day, every week. Uh, you, you can even see my Facebook. I put a, a, a little part on it. We don't know where we are. So I would say what I see is that actually you have more and more aid groups, ultra-right, ultra-left, Islamists, who are preparing young generation, who are training young generation. For us in France, when you have a show of anti-Semite, it's not old people. It's new generation. And so for me, I think one of the biggest challenge is to train young, young Jews and non-Jews to stand in front. It means we have to help the young Jews who are putting responsibility now in the Jewish community by any door to have a luggage to fight against their enemies. Otherwise, it will be a very bad affair because if the memory of Holocaust is kept only by the older people, on the other side, it's not older people. On the other side, they train young people. But I'm not sure that our young generation know that and are ready for that. I say that because in Georgetown I teach, my students are from any, any origin. And, you know, they are from wealthy family. The tuition is not light in, a, in Georgetown. But they know everything. If you ask about Japan, they know. About China, they know. But about eight groups, no. About Al-Qaeda, no about Al Nostra, no, etc. So I see a gap between our enemies who are really concentrated of young people and our side that we have to develop a pedagogy, a small kit adapted for young leaders. Otherwise, one day we will be alone in front of an amount of enemies who will come from anywhere. Thank you so much.
Yep. I know. I know I have found a lot of mass grave of these people. So I was going to ask you, how would a family member know whether or not uh, family members of theirs have already been located because Yad Vashem and other libraries do not have any of these records? It depends. If the mass grave is not too big, and uh, I give example, I, was, uh, I found a family, they told me we don't know to r- what happened to our grandpa. We have no news in 41. And I asked, what was the job of the grandpa? To me, he was selling horses. I say, you don't know, but in a village, somebody with selling horses is important at the period. And we went back to the village, and everybody remembered what happened to him, and we found the grave. So if you join us by mail or by Facebook, uh, Eva is here, is a representative in New York, so if you take her card, you can join us, and we can try to find... For the Musgrave at the border, I found a lot. Effectively, they forced the Jews to walk, and it was legal to kill them in Ukraine and illegal to kill them in Hungary at the period. And so the Hungarians pushed the Jews at the border, and sometimes they shoot them themselves, but in Ukraine, because it was legal. And we have many witnesses about that, many, many witnesses. Where, where, where? In, uh, in Galicia. So, uh, do you get those same kind of stories before the Russian, the uh, Barbarossa, as compared with after? No, it, I would say the German didn't accept so much that the local killed Jews before they arrived. <coughs> because they, it happened, some pogroms happened, but quickly Himmler said stop because we are losing the belongings. You know, there are only practical questions. So, in fact, some, they, sometimes the Germans are helping for the shooting, the local people, but the Germans want to have the control. Otherwise, they lose all the benefit of the killing. You know, don't forget, a mass killer is also looking for money and girl. As I say, a genocide is ideology, sex, and money. It's not only ideology. So, Germans were very afraid that the money will not come back in their pockets, private pockets or public pockets. Yeah. A soldier who is very hot and he stops and he asks for a glass of buttermilk. Yeah. And the farmer gives him a glass of buttermilk. Yeah. And he pays for the glass. Yeah. Yeah. That, was, that story has never happened. Yeah, I interviewed somebody. He, he saw that it was, very, it was a, a shooting in summer and it was very hot, very warm. So suddenly the shooter began to be hungry and thirsty. So he make a small pause during the shooting and he asks farmers to bring uh, milk or uh, grapes, of, uh, grapes or fruits and he paid them. You must understand the total cohabitation of normal life and death in a genocide. 
There is no barrier. It's a total cohabitation. We think, we imagine in our mind that nobody can be quite near a mass crime. No, no, not at all. As long as you knew you were safe, There are two cases. Uh, if we make only a marker, they will open it to look for gold. For them, it's a gold mine. They are looking for gold teeth or for jewels. In a country I will not name because I don't want to have problem, is 70% of the mass grave today are reopened. So the best is that the family, us normally we don't do it. We connect the family and they put a memorial themselves without noise and they pay a, a, a guy living near the mass grave. You know, can give 50 bucks for one year and it will be preserved. So it's a very simple way. But if you gather a lot of money and you arrive with big political affair, you will make the memorial and it will be destroyed. I say that because I know family who paid three times a memorial. It was awful for us because we didn't dare. To, it was not through us. Me always say, make it simple, nothing fancy, with stone, very well done, and it will be protected. And it's something that we will have to do now, Yahad. Great. Wait, I think wait one second. No, it's okay, go on. Yeah, you, you are right. Uh, it's why uh, when we make training of teaching, we don't speak only on America. We are making every year trainings of professors of high school from the country where they teach the minimum of locals. So it goes from Greece to Hungary to, to Lithuania, etc. And uh, I, would say, I would say I am pessimist and optimist. I am pessimist because I see that in front they prepare a new generation. So we have not to wait. We have not to wait the water to climb. Otherwise, we'll complain. We'll say, oh, it's terrible. Anti-Semitism is climbing. The Nayars is climbing. That's true. But I think we have now to be proactive and to train really the, the, the generation of leaders to know a young guy today, he will not study all Holocaust. It's too much. And also, he's young. 
So it's not the story of grandpa, it's the story of grand-grandpa. And you can think yourself how you were interested or not in the story of grand-grandpa. I think you... And so, I would say, if we don't anticipate that, because, it's, you know, by example, my grand-grandpa died, one of my grand-grandpa died in the First World War. We have never been interested, too far away. We stop at grandpa. And so, for this generation who is young, it will never be grandpa, and most of them will never see a survivor. So, me, what I try to teach is to teach the crime how people kill people. Because even in Auschwitz, you can visit Auschwitz without naming a German and say, this German was working in this office and killed this Jew here. It's a machine. You visit the machine. The camp, that, railway. But strangely, you'd never say, this German was here, and this one was here, and this one was here. There is no killer in an Auschwitz visit. And so I think we have to... You know, young generations are very interested in crimes. There is many, many series in movies in crime, from criminal minds to X-Files to all that. This generation, they are very receptive to that. But we have to show the crime. Even Auschwitz, to teach that German, you arrive that time, that day, he killed these Jews this way, that way. And it changed completely. I say that because, by example, I bring my students in spring break. Every spring break, we go in the field. But I train them as investigators. They will meet witnesses, read archives, and go in place when there is nothing. And I will ask them, what did you find? What do you think? And every, every year, we, we bring 25 students for that. And I say, uh, we have requests of many uni other universities. It's something also that Yarad is thinking to do, to train, train people as investigators. Not to repeat all the global affairs. It's too much. And it's too far away. I see that because in my country, in your Europe, Holocaust education is going down and down every year. Officially not. Um, has your work uh, in Eastern Europe uh, led to any sort of general discovery of local archives that might not have been that are useful, that have some information about the topic that wouldn't have gotten for that we cooperate. We cooperate mostly with Holocaust Museum of Washington, and we are uh, running everywhere to get archives. You must understand that some countries close the archive now. In uh, Russia, in Belarus, some archive of KGB investigation after war are not open at all, at all, less than before. So there is a big part of archive we still, and we don't think that with the geopolitics actual, we depend on geopolitics. With the geopolitics actually, we don't think they will archive soon. They will open them soon. But I would say we, all what we have, already we have nearly archives about every village. The problem is that everything was in Russian and written by hand. So it's why we have actually so many salaries to translate that. One challenge also will be to raise money to translate all these testimonies in English. Because today, which young leader speaks Polish, Ukrainian, Lithuanian? And it's also the only testimonies of non-Jews. So nobody can say it's propaganda of the Jews about Holocaust. We didn't pay the witnesses. They are not Jews. 
And we are ready to cooperate with any Jewish organization for that. Because we have evidences from non-Jews. So nobody can say, ah, it's Jewish propaganda to make money to build Israel. We know the music. I say that because I worked a lot with World Jewish Congress. I know all your initiative. We remember and that. I know what you are doing. That's absolutely great. But I see in my country where I live the strong opposition we have every day now. We are facing. It's why you have also a, a pledge card for people who can support us. I would say it's great because for us it's an emergency to find the million Jews missing. If we find them, we find them. If we don't find them, nobody will find them. You must understand all my team is not Jew. I have only two Jews, but they try to hide they are Jews because the first question the witness asks, are there Jews in your team? And are there German in your team? If there are Jews in the team, go away. Go away. So we have, on, in fact, two uh, Michelinger, we say two half Jews, but they always say they are not Jew. You know, it's, we are, you must understand, I don't interrogate angels. I interrogate people working in the Gestapo, working in the ghetto. So if the guys say I work in the ghetto, they say, ah, oh, you're anti-Semite. Of course, that's a good witness. If he was in Gestapo, that's my good witness. I've, by the way, I thank the World Jewish Congress because they helped us at the beginning. I think without the World Jewish Congress, we would never have been able to begin at the beginning. You, you must know, f yeah, yeah, but uh, uh, I will correct what you say about ISIS. Me, I don't believe what Trump says. Uh, it's not finished, ISIS. It's a mistake to say it's finished. I will, be, I will be in Iraq next week. I can bring you by phone the witness who just come out of ISIS. So it's not finished. And it's an organization who have roots everywhere. And we have to cooperate with many countries, actually, uh, to, to bring people in justice and so on. We are not only making interview in Iraq. We are not making only interview because uh, ISIS is still there. And so I agree. Uh, and so we are not arriving in... Uh, also in Iraq, you don't know, but we have uh, structures to help the women to reestablish themselves with sewing machine and that to learn a job. We have also treating 1,000 children who have been brainwashed well, Yazidi, not Muslim, stolen from the family and put in terrorist camps. So we have other activities that I don't show. I don't want to show the full, uh, full range of activity. And uh, you are right. But I would say, you are right, but I cannot avoid to say we must finish to find the mass grave. You know, people, me, I think when the last survivor will die, the deniers will demultiply. They already demultiply, but it will be worse. Imagine in France this week, uh, yesterday, we have an artist made portrait of me, Madame Simone Veil, who is very well known in Europe. And yesterday, people put Nazi symbol on each one. That's France today. That's where we are. That's where we are. No, they are no more afraid of anybody. Uh, Ilan Alimi was the first Jew killed in France, this young Jew, uh, 12 years ago. So they planted trees in memory of him. 
And normally they wanted to make a commemoration in two days, but yesterday somebody cut the trees. That's France. That's France. And France is not the worst country of Europe. You cannot say France is an awful country. We have millions of tourists and uh, uh, you, can don't, you can, cannot find a place in an hotel in Paris. I say that because, uh, and we are also the biggest Jewish community of Western Europe. So it's not azar if they attack us. They are the same in Germany, they are the same in Norway, etc., etc. So I, I agree with you, uh, and I, we are working now, my organization, with other Jewish organizations, to find a strategy to train young leaders. For me, it's an emergency. I say that because my students, they are very smart, and they know nothing about that. If you tell them, nominate me one hate group from America, but they know China, they know Russia, they know Japan. But uh, no, you don't understand. They don't care if it's true or not. Their way, they hate the Jews. You know, the first people who deny was Himmler and Hitler, and they did it. They did it. The first deniers were burning the Jews. Don't think that the deniers are academic people who studied a lot and think Holocaust didn't exist. They hate the Jews. There is no denier who likes the Jews. It's a hate group. It's a strategy because they know that if they attack from Holocaust, it's deny any legitimacy to the Jewish people today. Because if it was not true, what a big lie. You know, they also don't believe the 9-11 was done by anybody except the Jews. You have many books in France about that. It's Mossad who did the 9-11, according to them. It's the same music. It's the same music. And they will tell you that the Jews are behind Trump and the Jews are behind Putin and so on and so on and so on. So it's, it's a strategy of delegitimation before they were afraid in Europe. Because if you were anti-Jew, you were accused to be a Nazi. Today, if you are pro-Jew, you are accused to be a Zionist. It completely switched. This switch began in 2005. Until 2005, you couldn't have a meeting of educated people say we hate the Jews. They say, oh, you are a fascist, you are a Nazi. Now, if you begin to say you work with the Jews in a nice place with no Jew in the table, immediately you will have remark. Immediately. So I say that because we are in a strange atmosphere and we saw the switch. We saw the switch. And the strategy is to make the Jews go. Go out, go out. Go out of France, go out of Germany, go out of Palestine, go anywhere but out. It's why we have to be strong. We are not to be paranoid. We are not to be afraid. You have strong Jewish organization. We are a non-Jewish organization. And uh, we are working on our side on things where nobody can work so much. For example, we opened the first Holocaust Museum in Central America. You know, it was a law in Guatemala. It's an obligation to teach Holocaust. It was nothing. So we opened. We are all these children. And now they ask us to train all the professors from the country around. You know, one child per two will be an immigrant in America. It's so easy to tell them you are poor because they are the Jews. It's so easy. It's why we have not to be only reactive, but we have to be proactive and not to be frightened. If you are frightened, it's a finish. It's like a rabbit in the light of a car. It's finished. Yeah. <laughs>
<coughs> we are in Poland, but we must know uh, Eva is Polish. I have a strong Polish team. So when we arrive in village, they see Polish people, not Jews from Poland. I say that because it's very different. I would say the atmosphere is less good than before, but since 10 years, the Polish we speak, yes, we have hundreds and hundreds of interviews. They explain the shooting and everything. But you know, you must understand, if a Polish told me uh, my father was arresting you, say, oh, how many and what he did? Can you show me where are the corpse? I, we are not here to accuse. We are here to know the facts and where are the dead. And I would say Polish, Poland is split today with a very open mind is Poland and another Poland with less open mind. You are two Poland. But for, of course, for old people, you know, uh, sometimes they remember exactly the time when they were young. No, but I would say Poland is not the most difficult country for us to investigate. It's more, more complicated in Lithuania. Lithuania is the most difficult. From far. Yeah? We, thank you. You can come in my board if you want. It's a, we are exactly at this turning point. It's a question that the board has. We have a French board and American board, and it's exactly the question that we have. It's complicated because in on one side, we must raise money to find all the mass grave because in two, three years, it will be finished. On the other side, we have a huge request of transmitting what we found. And we must keep our specificity because if we have been swallowed by Jewish organizations, it's ah, again the Jews. So I take advantage that because most of the leaders are Christian, not necessarily Catholic, uh, Protestant or Orthodox or from anywhere. And so I try to keep this particularity to be like uh, an outsider who brings a lot. Otherwise, uh, people will say, okay, it's again Jewish propaganda. It's why we, but it's exactly a question that I have now to transmit it. We have a request of many universities in America. Yeah, we, we, yeah, but but but, but uh, welcome in my board. <laughs> <laughs> But we have a, we have good relation. We, we are. You must understand. Um, I work with the Jews since 27 years, so we have relation with the most of, most of the organization. But I, we have good relation with this museum, of course. Actually, everybody who is pushing is very welcome. What I see is that the people of bad will they federate very quickly. The mafia, you have no no need of meetings like that. Uh, they will find themselves very quickly. But the people of goodwill. It can be the tendency to be each one like that, like islands. So actually a challenge is to federate the people of goodwill to confront the big challenge. Because in front of us, they are federated. From the Islamists to ultra-right, ultra-left, if they are anti-Jew, it's okay. It's okay. They can work together. 
So we have to be strong together, even if we keep ourselves our identities. I, I, my, my assistant told me that I have not so much time. If you want, yeah, last question. Yeah, there is a map. There is an interactive map. You have the points that we have investigated. If you pinpoint the point, you have a piece of archives, a piece of testimony, all the evidences of the crime. But if you need the whole testimony, you have to write to us because the deniers can ask that and also attack the people and I don't know what. And also look for gold. So we have make only pieces, but it's a, it's a map that you can work on it. With my students, we always work through that. It's, you have the map of all the killing sites. Yeah, on, on the website. Two million point two. I don't know. It's too early to say, and I cannot publish anything about that because I work in countries when it's difficult to admit they kill Jews. So if I begin to publish the numbers, it will be the end of my research in certain countries. In certain countries, I need a visa. And I have been expelled already, already from certain countries. You must understand, we don't say this part. There is a part of question of security. Because when you are in a big city, it's okay. When you are in a small village in the middle of nowhere, something can happen easily. Merci beaucoup. To help us, there are two means. If you pray for us, pray that we don't die too quickly. <laughs> and if you have financial support, you can, there is a non-profit recognized 503 here in New York. And other thing is you have doors. When we find you, we can train young people around you or other groups. We are absolutely ready to do it. It's not to raise money. It's to prepare the future. Thank you, man. Merci. Thank you. 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 Thank you.